Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio. to research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This is your guest host, Natan Elaine Kemp. I want to welcome our callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. You can join this show every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time and 8 p.m. Central, where Bernice Alexander Bennett will have a wonderful lineup of experts who will share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy questions. All of the guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. If you have logged in as a guest and wish to participate in the chat, you can sign in through your Facebook account or Blog Talk Radio. I will also open the lines in the second half of the show so that you can ask questions of the guests. In previous episodes, we have alluded to plantation records. You may recall that Judy Russell, a.k.a. the legal genealogist, discussed property rights and African Americans. Or you may recall that J. Mark Lowe discussed dower slaves and administrative court actions. And recently, we had Edward Ball, author of Slaves and the Family, and you may recall in writing that book, he consulted plantation records of his ancestors. Well, tonight's show may help you overcome that brick wall. Jean L. Cooper is a cataloger and reference librarian, as well as a genealogical resources specialist at the University of Virginia Library. Ms. Cooper has a BA from Alma College in Alma, Michigan, and an ML from the University of South Carolina in Columbia. Ms. Cooper received the Virginia Geological Society's Virginia Records Award in 2009 for her work in indexing the records of antebellum Southern Plantation's microfilm collection which is the topic of tonight's show. Although I met Jean about three years ago, I first became aware of her work from the winter 2012 issue of Archives News, the newsletter of the Friends of the Virginia State Archives. Let me give a warm welcome to Jean L. Cooper 
to research at the National Archives and beyond. Welcome, Jean. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. We're happy that you have decided to join us. Let's begin by introducing our callers and chatters to you. How long have you been working at the University of Virginia Library in Charlottesville? Well, I have been working here for about 30 years. I've done a lot of different jobs. Uh, at first, I was a technical services librarian, which meant that I maintained the uh, card catalog. And then I became the uh, computer uh, online catalog librarian and maintained the online catalog. And then I became the um, interlibrary services uh, librarian. Right now, um, I work in cataloging and reference, as you said, but one of my special jobs being the uh, genealogical resources specialist. And what I do with that is I help people who come in to do genealogical research find the information they need or tell them where they can find it if it's in a different library. And how long have you been working as a genealogical resources specialist? I've been doing that since about 2005. Um, the person who was doing it before uh, retired, and I suggested that, that I would be a good person to do it. In fact, I was jumping up and down and waving my arms because <laughs> it's such a pleasure to do something that one enjoys and get paid for it, you know. And and so I've been doing it, I guess it's about eight years now. Wonderful. Now, how did you become aware of these antebellum southern plantation records? My father's family is from Orangeburg, South Carolina. And those of you who have done research in that area know that Orangeburg is one of the burned counties. And so I was constantly looking for resources that survived and trying to find information on uh, the Cooper family in that area. Um, and since we were not famous people and we were not rich people, I had to try to find everyday records. And so uh, one day I just started looking through the online catalog down in South Carolina and pulled up a record for these antebellum southern plantations. And when I went to look, I found this treasure trove of information about uh, plantations, and particularly plantations in the Orangeburg area. So that it started there. Did you find anything on any of your ancestors in those records? Well, yes. Um, it's kind of embarrassing, but... Uh, I was looking in the records of Dr. Ogilvy, who was a physician in Orangeburg, and uh, he had a notebook that they microfilmed. And as you turn through each page, there's a person's name at the top because what he did was that he kept records of when he had visited the family and how much he charged and who he saw and for what. Well, I actually did come upon my uh, great-great-grandfather's name. Unfortunately, what I found out was that he was a deadbeat because he owed the doctor money. Oh, no. And <laughs> Yes. Uh, 
thought it was quite funny, but my grandmother didn't. It was too close, too personal for her. Yes. <laughs> well, she also liked to just hear the good stuff. And some people do, but mm-hmm. that's not the case in every family. But let's yeah. let's talk about these records of the antebellum southern plantations. What are they? Well, about 1976, uh, a historian, a famous historian named Kenneth Stamp, suggested that the University Press of America, they, they tended to um, microfilm historical documents and then make them available to libraries so that researchers could use them, that they pulled together a group of plantation records. And this is what he said. Um, deposited in southern state archives and in the libraries of many southern universities and historical societies, the number of available plantation records has increased significantly in recent decades. Our publication is designed to assist scholars in their use by offering for the first time an ample selection of the most important materials in a single microfilm collection. These manuscripts consist of business records, account books, slave lists, overseers' reports, diaries, private letters, and many other kinds of records. So you see it's a very wide-ranging collection. And uh, possibly a goldmine for someone. Absolutely, absolutely. Because um, in the antebellum South, Slaves were money. It, the land may have been more valuable, but that was the only thing that was more valuable to a southern planter than the people he enslaved. And uh, so they kept a lot of records about the uh, their slaves and details, uh, and I'll talk to you about some of those details later, but details that you would never have thought you could find. Wow. I I think we would all love to stumble across something like that. Could you give us a sense how many of these records are out there, if anyone's bothered to ever count? Yes. Um, There are approximately 1,500 reels. They include materials from 14 different libraries across the South, from Maryland to Texas. They cover a period from pre-1700 through 1865 or later, and they are primary source materials. If you look at one of the um, microfilm reels, there are about a thousand frames or pages in each one. So that gives you about 1.5 million documents to look at. Wow, 1.5 million documents. Yes. And before we continue, someone has asked a question, and I wanted to ask you it now. The question is, where do we access this collection online? Okay. Actually, I don't think it is yet available online. Um, It's still only available through Microform, 
but I can tell you who will have them. Let me just get to the right place here. The libraries that are in the South that hold all the series, and that is series A through N, and we'll talk about that in a, in a little bit, um, are Johns Hopkins University in Maryland, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill, the University of Texas at Austin, and the University of Virginia. We have all of the reels. There are a lot of other libraries that have <clears throat> one or two or maybe even more sets within that real series. For instance, um, the University of uh, Southern Florida has some of them, Davidson College, Duke University, Florida A&M, Louisiana State University, Virginia Beach Public Library has them. Um, I've been down there and looked. Um, Auburn, Clemson, Davidson College, there's, there's a lot of libraries that just have a few of the series. Is this information about where one can access the records? Is there a list somewhere online? Yes, there is a online catalog that is available to the public, and it's called worldcat.org, W-O-R-L-D-C-A-T dot O-R-G. And this is an online catalog of 20 million records. And if you look it up by title, Records of Antebellum Southern Plantations, you should be able to find which libraries own which sets. Okay, great. So it should be uh, sort of clear now that it's not available online right now, but by accessing WorldCat, you can determine which libraries near you hopefully have some, if not all, of the sets of records. Exactly, exactly. Do these records only include states south of the Mason-Dixon line? Well, it includes materials in um, libraries south of the Mason-Dixon line. Um, for instance, Series A is from the South Carolina Library at the University of South Carolina, and Series B is the South Carolina Historical Society in Charleston. Uh, there are several from Virginia, there's the University of Virginia Library, gave several uh, micro, microfilm real sets, um, the Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, the College of William and Mary, and the Virginia Historical Society. However, once they found the materials in these libraries and decided which ones they wanted to um, microfilm, a lot of this material is outside of the South because a lot of these rich families had business interests in other places, New York, uh, Wisconsin, um, and, and it includes letters from there. It includes letters from people who went West. Um, basically anything you would find in a family manuscript collection. Okay. So don't just assume that because you're right. looking for records in the South that they're only located in the South. Right, right. Let's and, turn our attention. Um, I'm sorry. 
Uh, go ahead. I was going to say, you've touched on where some of these records are housed. Mm-hmm. I wanted to focus about focus on your efforts. How long did it take you to compile this index? It took me about six years to decide to do it and about four years to get it done. Um, the six years were, when I was doing research on my own family, I was interested in the South Carolina material. And so I went through all of the guides. We'll talk about the guides in a minute. Um, and marked down which sets were from South Carolina. And there were it, there was material from South Carolina in every single series, even if it was from Texas or Louisiana or Mississippi or wherever. So I wrote all these down and put it into a spreadsheet so that I could use it. And then I thought, well, maybe here at the University of Virginia, we might like to have all the Virginia records. So I did the same thing. I indexed the materials on Virginia. And by that time, I had this humongous database. And I said, maybe the other states would be interested too. So after thinking about this undertaking for a while, I went through and indexed the entire, all of the guides by state, by plantation name, and by um, surname of people mentioned. And it did take me uh, four years to pull this all together because I was doing it at nights and on weekends. In the last three months, the University of Virginia Library gave me a research grant which allowed me time off to finish it up and pull the last bits together, which I'm very grateful to them because um, that's the hardest part is finishing it. So I have all this information. I put it into a nice spreadsheet, and I got my sister, who is a whiz with Microsoft Word, to help me put it into a format that looked nice. And I have to admit, the first one was self-published, because when I checked with um, standard publishers, it would take a year and a half to get done. Um, it would I wouldn't have no control over what they did to it. They wanted to change the name um, South Carolina Library to South Carolina Library, which is totally wrong. <laughs> and... <laughs> And so I just said, okay, I am going to self-publish this. Uh, This was in 2003. I'm going to self-publish this. I am going to do it in three months, and I'm going to control it. And I'm not going to charge a lot of money for it. And when I got it published, uh, I started, you know, showing people this book. And it was kind of like a underground uh, hit. <laughs> I had professors Those are the best emailing kind. me. <laughs> yes. I had professors emailing me and telling me how useful they found it. And some of them bought the electronic copy, and some of them bought the paper copy, and some of them bought both, which 
is just fine with me. <laughs> um, so that's the story of how I actually came to publish this book. Wow. And then I believe there is a newer edition, and you said you self-published the first one. Right. And the second one was published in 2009 by McFarland Publishing, and we changed it a little bit. Um, it includes one of the plantation indexes, one of the – let me just check here and make sure I got the right thing – one of the uh, surname indexes, one of the location indexes, and then I added a list of collection titles so that people would know what collections were were filmed for these microfilms. Just by the way you organize, how you arrange your chapters, one can tell you are truly a reference librarian. You are thinking about people coming to the library, and they may not have all the information to research something one way. So you provide three different ways to look up the information. I applaud you on that. Well, thank you very much. I, I you know, did it the way I thought it would be useful for me if I were coming into the library. So, I, you know, I think that that's uh, it's, it's useful when you think of your readers like that. Absolutely. Why are these records valuable to a family historian? These records contain information that may no longer survive in the public records, may have never existed in the public records. They contain um, slave lists. They contain blanket lists. A blanket list is a list that the um, plantation owner kept when he handed out blankets once a year. And he would he would put a list, um, uh, Billy, Harriet, and three children, and he would give them four blankets. And they had to make do with that for the entire year. And, you know, it would go down. This gives you an idea of who is living in what family. Which You're right. Is really useful. Yeah. Um, a lot of their slave lists were organized in family groups, at least that's what it looks like. There's a man, a woman, and children. And that does that gives you a uh, you know, suggestion, again, that these are family groups. Um, one that I found quite interesting was a man who made a list of his uh, slaves, and he would name them, and he would physically describe them, and then he would talk about their character. You know, a, a fine worker, but uh, not respectful, or you know, something like that. Which, when you, when I do my genealogy work, I like to know about the people. It's not just names and dates. I want to know what they were like, because I think that our ancestors were just like we were, or we are. They just used the different tools. And... Using a description such as this, it helps you know your ancestors better. Indeed. The blanket list, of course, is uh, something I think I've never heard of before. Anything else unusual that you have discovered in looking at these plantation records? Um, let's see. 
I, um, let's see. Okay. We were talking about uh, business records, which include the account books, the correspondence, the overseer's reports. And we, they also had estate papers, wills, deeds, liens, and maps, because land records and wills and inventories of estates often list uh, the slaves that were property of this dead person. Um, also, they list uh, family letters, they have um, diaries and genealogies. Now, the genealogies may not be those of the slaves, but they are those of the plantation owners. And the reason why this is helpful is because if you know who, how to find the people who enslaved your people, your ancestors, then it's easier to find stuff about them because it's going to be in their records. And that's what Edward Ball did when he looked through in the Ball papers, yeah. which are included in the South Carolina materials, by the way. Um, he looked to the inventory, the estates, the inventories, the wills, and uh, all of the detailed business accounting that is involved when you're passing on valuable property. And, of course, slaves were very valuable property. Very valuable. Well, Jean, why don't we take our take a break right now, and we'll come back in a minute, and we'll give our listeners and chatters more information by going through some case studies. Okay. That sounds great. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is the guest host, Natan Elaine Kemp, and you are listening to Jean L. Cooper, cataloger and reference librarian at the University of Virginia Library. I want to remind everyone that all of these shows are archived and available immediately after the broadcast as a podcast. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646 646- 200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Now, Jean, we kind of teased our listeners and chatters and said we would talk about some case studies. Do you have right. some examples you'd like to share with them about information that can be gleaned from looking at these records? Yes, I do. Um, one of the things I wanted to do was that there's this letter that I found when I was looking through the Lewis Ayer Malone paper or Malone Ayer papers, which were at the University of South Carolina, 
and it is a letter from some people who had gone from Edgefield County, South Carolina, to Georgia. And apparently they didn't keep uh, a good correspondence going because it sounds like these people haven't written to their, their relatives in a while. But um, they, they say, Dear Brother, we received your letter. And then they talk about their family. We have lost none of our children since you saw us. We have got seven children, the eldest named William, who is in his 18th year. He is well-grown and much respected by all acquaintance and an education sufficient for any business. And then they go on to name all uh, seven of them. And then they talk about their brother. Brother Zacharias paid us a visit about two years ago. He has since lost his wife and is married again. We have had several letters from him since we saw him. He had four children, and his wife died with the fifth. She took measles and miscarried and quickly after expired. Our brother Benjamin David is dead, and his widow married again against the entreaties of all his friends to Philip Hedges, which she will never repent of but once, and that will be as long as she lives. Which is really not a nice thing to say about no. the new husband. <laughs> no. <laughs> so um, this is the sort of... of personal letter that you can find. Now, um, another case study was that I was looking in some records called the Holiday Family Papers, 1766 to 1955. And in uh, that is Series M, which I believe is Louisiana, and uh, Part 4, Real 38. And what this is is a notebook of the estate of Louis Holiday and it lists all of the people he owed money to. And the next page is a genealogy of his family, his son Walter, who, his wife Hulda, and their children. The third page, and this is a great one, is that it starts a list of slaves. For instance, they list Ellen, daughter of Matilda, and born November 1830. This is quite unusual to actually have a date when uh, one of the slaves was born. And it goes on. It's an entire page, and there are several of these pages. And then if you go a little bit further, you will find another list of the same group of slaves. And there's one mentioned... Frances Ann, daughter of Harriet. She was born February 1841. And there are six sections to this diary. And even farther on, you find another list by the same people. And it starts out, Lucy, born 1765, 10th August. 1765? Yes. Wow. Julius, yeah, Julius, born 1786, 16 September. Billy, born 1796, wow. March. So apparently Lucy is, was... Mm-hmm. Is that record from St. Helena Parish in uh, Louisiana? Um, I don't know. Let me just double check. It's uh, I did not record where he lived, but we can easily find it. 
that's amazing if someone today is researching that's their ancestors. Mm-hmm. To get back that far mm-hmm. and exact dates. Yeah. Well, and as you go further, you uh, Lucy has a double line under it, so that means she's one generation, and then Julius and Dilly must be the next generation. And then as you go a little bit further down, it says Harriet, daughter of Dilly, 1807, 1st September. So Harriet was born when Dilly was 17. And since we have a record that Stacey Ann was Harriet's daughter, we now have four generations of slaves in this family. That's incredible. Yeah, isn't that wonderful? Um, I just thought that was a a really amazing thing. And people sometimes think, there's no way I can overcome the brick wall of slavery. You've identified by looking at these records, and it may be Mm time-consuming, but by looking Mm -hmm. at these records, you can strike gold. Yes, absolutely. Um, Another interesting thing is that uh, in the Series E, Part 1, which is from the University of Virginia, um, there is the uh, slave list from the Silas and R.H. Omohundra ledger. The Omohundra family was a group of um, slave traders, and they lived in Richmond and Sylvana County. And this particular book they only saved a certain number of pages for it, and around the edges it's very burned, but you can still read it. And on one side of the page, you have um, slaves bought from so-and-so, and they give the name of the person who sold them, and they list their names and uh, details such as uh, birth date, how much they paid for them, etc. And then on the next side of the page, they have who they sold them to and for how much. So if you're looking for someone who has moved away from a particular place, and if you can find them on this Omohundro slave list, you you can find out where they went to. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. Um, I I thought it was kind of... uh, sad, though, that a lot of this book was burned. I don't know what happened to it. It may have happened during the burning of Richmond uh, in 1865, but um, it's it's a very handy little thing to have. Do you know the date um, range for that record? For that particular record, um, I I would have to be looking at it. I don't have it in front of me. Okay. I have it on my website, though, if you want to give people the website to the presentation that I often give about this. Okay, why don't you give the uh, address and I'll type it in in the chat. Okay, it's people.virginia, and that's Virginia spelled out, dot edu slash, and then a tilde, that little squiggly mark, jlc5f as in Frank, Slash genealogy with a capital G, page one with a capital P, 
.htm. Okay. And since you mentioned this presentation you gave, why don't you uh, elaborate a little bit more about what you discuss in this presentation okay. and how often you give it? Well, I usually give it once a year to various people, sometimes more than that. Um, it's always more popular around the time when one of the books come, came out. But people are still interested in this. I, I did give it once in Atlanta at one of the family history conferences. And uh, I, it, was, it was quite interesting because I was talking about uh, the Butler family, I believe, in Georgia because I wanted to have some information about Georgia. I was in Atlanta. And somebody stood up and said, that's my family. And Ooh. I was quite surprised. <laughs> um, so it's uh, it's always a pleasure to give this particular one because it's a resource that so few people know about. Yes. Yes, I can understand that because I, I wasn't particularly aware of that. There's a question coming out of the chat, and I think it was to follow up on the um, records with the slave traders. And the question is, mm -hmm. are there many records of the slave trading establishments in Virginia and Maryland? Um, I haven't particularly seen them, but I haven't read through all 1.5 million documents. Yeah. So it's, um, Come on. it's probably there are more than one, let me say that, but I don't okay. know how many. Now, we've discussed, and let me say, uh, chatters, if you have any other questions, please don't hesitate to ask. And once again, for our listeners, please dial in if you have a question, 646-200-0491, and press 1 to speak to the host. We've alluded to this a little bit before, but about finding these records, you mentioned that there are different archives and libraries. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, well, let me just walk you through the way I would go about finding information in these records. First right. off, I would uh, go to your library or find a historical association or something that has my index. I would, I would say buy it, but it's $75, and honestly, if you can get your library to buy it for you, do that. Um, the uh, Anyway, you, you can look, let us say that you are looking for a plantation in Georgia called uh, Hope, okay? So you go into the plantation name index and you look for Hope alphabetically. And then the next column should give the location, the state, South Carolina, Georgia, whatever. If you find what you're looking for, you go across the, the page, there's a line, and it will tell you what series, A through N, and what part these are in. Then you want to get the uh, guide for that particular series and part. Now, I'll tell you the guides uh, have a detailed analysis of each collection and series. They have notes on the sources. They give you a biography. 
mm-hmm. of um, the people who, of the family who, who had the papers, uh, and talk about in some detail about if they're letters, who the letters are from and to, um, if there's a collection like business ledgers, um, if there are photographs, that sort of thing. And then they have a real index. The real, R-E-E-L index, tells you what real the document that you want is on. So you want to read through that whole entry for that one set. Okay. Collection. And then you have to go and get that real. If your library doesn't have it, then you should request it through interlibrary loan. Now, you might think, I'll go ahead and buy it. But I'll tell you, these are very expensive microfilms. Um, The last I looked at the um, price list, which was a couple of years ago, the reels cost between $900 and $1,200 each. Each. And didn't you say so there were 15,000 of these? 1,500. 1,500, okay. Yeah. So, you know, it, you probably don't want to put the money into it when the library can do it for you. That's right. And those are our tax dollars, so make sure you use the library. Yeah. We, <laughs> we do have a caller, area code 301. Welcome yeah. to the show. Hello, Bernice. I am a part of the Prince George's uh, African American Heritage Society with youth. I've heard your presentation. My question. This is Nathan. Go ahead. This is Paula. Okay. My hi, Paula. Is, hi. My question is this: um, I'm trying to tra- I'm, I'm trying to trace my great great grandfather, and he is mentioned in in 1800 in the will. Of the slave master, uh, but he's not listed as being the child of this woman who I believe is his mother. But she's the only adult who's listed with these children. Mm-hmm. Then, okay, and then when this when this man died, this this man, uh, my ancestor's name was Jacob. He was passed on to a brother, and later ends up with another brother. And I can't find a document that transfers him from brother one to brother two. And so I'm asking, like, uh, how could I, what could I look at? Because I've looked at newspaper, you know, like those newspaper um, legal uh, entries, and I've looked in the files in Georgia, you know, for bill of sales, and I just can't find anything. I don't know what to do. The, the brother he who inherited him ended up with no land and no slaves after about 10 years. And then this man, Jacob, ends up with this other brother, who we definitely know is our he was our ancestor because that story hmm. was passed on. And my daddy and, the, and my grandfather had relations with that man's uh, children in later years. Hmm. Well, what I would do, um, I'm assuming that you have gone to the courthouse and I don't know if your uh, particular county is a burned county. No, it's not. Mm-mm. No, it's not. Good. Um, and you, in the courthouse, in the wills and inventories of state records, there should be a series of documents, if you're lucky, that 
are what the commissioners who split up the estates reported to the courts. And usually there's one in there that says um, where it divides the estate into equal portions. And this is where you will usually see a list of the enslaved people divided up to different people, lot one, lot two, lot three, that sort of thing. And I'm assuming that none of none of this sort of record was there? Well, no, it was there and my ancestor was given was given to a brother named I forgot his name, but he was given to that let's just call him Brother mm-hmm. A. But okay. within ten years, Brother A has no slaves and no land. But brother mm-hmm. but but my ancestor ends up with brother B. Okay. And I can't find anything that transfers them. Yeah, you might look in the deeds, because not only were deeds for land, but they were also for um, personal property, like a slave or a horse or a cow. I mean, it's it's kind of shocking to have them equated, but that's the reality of what they did. Um, did you look at the deeds? I have looked, you know, as mm-hmm. best I could. Yeah, the deed books are usually separate from the other stuff. Yeah, yeah, they are. I mean, yeah. I, I've, I've done an extensive amount of, mm-hmm. you know, of of delving into it, and I've looked at all of those inventories, right. you know, in the states, you know, those kind of things, but I just have not been able to find a document that would transfer, mm-hmm. because what I'm trying to do is verify that it is the same man, not just somebody right. with the same name. Okay, well, what I would suggest, since you know the person, you know the name of the of the final owner. You can um, look up his surname in the index, and if if you find the right one, for instance, if it's Smith in the appropriate county, then you can go to that collection of papers, and there could be something in there saying purchased so-and-so from brother, or uh, took so-and-so in lieu of debt from brother, that sort of thing. Um, And you also need to remember that this particular microfilm set, while huge, is not everything. It's just the the most important stuff that they decided on 25 years ago. And the uh, libraries have gotten much more stuff in the past 25 years. And it wasn't all of what they had 25 years ago. So I would start in the area of where uh, your ancestors were and go to major libraries that have um, manuscript collections and archives in that area and then start going out. Okay. Thank you for calling, Paula. All right. Thank you very much. Jean, there are a couple of questions um, coming out of the chat that i like to pose to you. One question is, how often have you found records where slave owners acknowledge or at least hint that a specific slave or set of slaves are members of the owner's family? Um, you know, I don't think they've ever said or hinted at that in the ones that I've looked at. Um, okay. However, 
when they describe a slave as mulatto, it's kind of acknowledged that that's what's happening. Oh, yeah. So you have to read in between the lines. Right, right. Another question, are these reels available through the Family History Centers? You know, I don't know. I would I would not be surprised, but I've never looked for them there. I would talk and, to your local Family History Center and, and ask them. Okay, thank you. And let me say one more time, if you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. You've mentioned, Jean, that there are some other sets of, of microfilms besides the antebellum southern plantation, I think, in, in answering Paula's question, the caller's question. Yes. Um, there is a sequel to Records of Antebellum Southern Plantations from the Revolution to the Civil War, which is the one we're talking about now, and it's called Records of Southern Plantations from Emancipation to the Great Migration. And that concentrates on materials from 1865 to 1917. And it basically does the same thing. They're using the same documents that they used um, for the current one, but they went later. They, they took later periods of time. Um, they have stuff from Duke. They have stuff from South Carolina. And I think that's as far as they've got so far. I don't know if they're going to continue it. Um, oh, so this is an ongoing process. Well, I think so, but, um, you know, they stopped microfilming things anymore, and now they scan them and put them, make them available digitally, and I haven't heard anything about that for this particular set, so I'm going to have to do some more research on that, because I was hoping to do an index for that set, but um, I just, I haven't seen much about it lately. Um, there's another record called um, a Before we go to the next record, I'm sorry. Uh -huh. Someone asked That's that you okay. repeat the title again, and I believe you said it's the records of Southern Plantations from Emancipation to the Great Migration? Yes. 1865 to 1917? Yes. Okay. And another question I wanted to ask that's coming out of the chat before we move on I apologize what is no the condition what is the condition of these records the, the main records we're talking about the records of the antebellum uh, plantations southern plantations are most of these records legible most of them are legible yes they're they are written uh, handwritten for the most part although there were some typewritten things and um, they're done with dark ink, usually. And unless they've been burned around the edges, you can pretty much read them. Um, you know, you have to kind of decipher them because their handwriting was kind of like our handwriting. You, you, Some of them were good and pretty, and some of them were just writing, you know. 
someone asked, can you give us an example of how large is the collection for states such as Louisiana, Mississippi, and South Carolina? I mean, in your looking and compiling these records, is there one state that has more records versus another, and is there one state in particular that may have the fewest collection of records? Um, yes, um, I can give you what I think. The uh, Series J is from the Southern Historical Collection at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And there are something like 12 parts. And by parts, I mean collections. Uh, the first part is the Cameron family papers. The second part is the Pettigrew family papers. And it goes on like that. So um, that's probably the one with the most parts. There's... Uh, one, uh, was it number, I'm guessing it's number A, the selections from the South Carolina Library. Um, it only has two parts. It has the papers of James Henry Hammond, who was a legislator and slave owner. And then it has part two, miscellaneous collections. And that is about as many or as few as I've seen in one of these collections. The ones for the University of Virginia Library have six parts, Virginia Plantations, the Cox Family Papers, the Ambler Family Papers, and um, Virginia Plantations in the central Piedmont and on south side Virginia. Um, the average for this collection is about four to five parts in a series. Uh, let me see if there are any more questions coming out of the chat at the moment. I don't see mm -hmm. any, and I'm going to check and see if there are any additional callers at the moment. No, we don't have any, so we will continue. I think okay. we've touched on this about, okay, another question coming out of the chat. What about Louisiana in terms of the the types of records or the volume of records available from the state of Louisiana? They have uh, six parts, and one uh, part one is Louisiana sugar plantations, part two is Louisiana and miscellaneous southern cotton plantations, part three is the Natchez area, part four is the Barrow, Bisland, Bowman, and other collections, five is the Butler family collection, and part six is the David Weeks and family collection. Mm. You mentioned earlier about how you organize your index, and you mentioned by surnames. How did mm -hmm. you, in terms of the surnames, was it like the prominent family or head of the family, or how did you select which name or names to associate with particular plantational records, particularly if there were like, it may have been like three or four names associated with one family? Mm -hmm. Sometimes I had to... Uh, indexed 25 names for a collection. There was one collection in um, um, the Valley of Virginia where it was just a group of um, records and each one had a different name. So I just did all of them. Um, if it was, for instance, this David Weeks and family collection, obviously Weeks would be one point of reference. Uh, if they had 
major uh, correspondence with another family, another part of their family, I would include those names. If um, some some of these people were lawyers, and in their records are copies of wills from other people, and if I could find that information, I would include the names attached to the copies of the wills, just in case, you know. Um, it just it just seemed to me that it would be helpful to people to know that if I could get it to them. Now, I will tell you that I indexed these from the guides, not from the microfilm, because I wanted to finish in four years and not 24. <laughs> um, so if if there's only one letter from someone, I probably didn't index it. But if there are five or six letters from someone, I probably index that last name. Okay. You mentioned, I know this was discussed earlier, but not everyone who is either on the phone or in the chat joined us at the very beginning. And you organize your index three different ways, I believe. Would you repeat how you organize those? Yes. I organized it by location. And by location, I mean county and state. Of course, in uh, Louisiana, they're parishes, and in South Carolina, they're districts. Um, The second index was the surname index, and I listed those by surname and state. And then the last one was plantation name, and I indexed those by state and county if there was a county involved. Do you recall off the top of your head if you had any records in your index from Nelson County, Virginia? I suspect I did. In fact, I know I did. Um, the, the Cabell family, there was, a, there was a lot of material from the Cabell family, and while... Before 1809, their material was in Albemarle because Nelson County didn't exist. After 1809, their material was in a separate county. So if if any of this material is after 1809, I would have listed it as Nelson County. Well, thank you. Do you mind hanging on through another break and then we can wrap up the show uh, take any more questions you can give any more information out to our listeners and chatters oh that'll be great okay we'll take a break right now
Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond, Blog Talk Radio. This is the guest host, Natan Elaine Kemp, and you are listening to Jean L. Cooper, cataloger and reference librarian at the University of Virginia Library. If you would like to ask a question or make a comment, please call 646-200-0491 and press 1 to speak to the host. Also, if you are in the chat, please pose your questions there. And, Jean, we do have some more questions. Okay. Uh, question, do you have records from Edgefield District, South Carolina, in your index? Yes. I know this because that's one of the places that my people are from. Oh, okay. That's great. So uh, for that person, there are records there for Edgefield. Another question, um, about your uh, involvement with genealogy groups in your local area, and what are some of the projects that you are currently working on? Um, in my local area, we have a number of genealogy groups. Um, there's the Central Virginia Genealogical Society, and um, I'm a member. I don't often go to the meetings because um, I'm busy, but I'm trying to write, you know. And uh, then we have, um, uh, and of course it's running past my mind. But anyway, um, my next project, and this is going to sound odd, but I'm doing a travel guide to the Moselle region of Germany. Okay, please elaborate on that. <laughs> um, the reason is because uh, it, it's so beautiful and it was so difficult to find information on that area that I thought that, at least in English, that I would pull some of this together in an attempt to help the next person who goes there. And Okay, so is that a favorite uh, travel area for you? Or is your ancestors well, from I'm that location? No, no, I don't have ancestors from that location. Mine are, most of my ancestors are English. Um, theoretically, we have uh, an American Indian, a Cherokee, on my father's side. We can't prove it, though, so I kind of doubt that's absolutely true. I think that the first wife of my great-great-grandfather was not a Cherokee, but the fourth wife was, and we're descended from the first wife, which is a shame because, you know, it would be wonderful to be able to, to say that, you know, you're part Cherokee, but um, another another book that I'm working on right now is I'm doing a, a biographical dictionary, I guess you would call it, of graduates of the University of Virginia from 1825 to 1874. This is the first 50 years of the university. And I thought it would be really helpful for people to know a little bit about the people who went there uh, in those early years because they turned into the movers and shakers during the Civil War, most of them on the Confederate side, I will admit. Um, but it, it gives you an idea of what they were thinking and what happened to them, which I always find fascinating. That is fascinating, and the fact that you give insight into these individuals who later on played a, a role in the Civil War. We have a few more questions coming out of the chat that I'd like to um, ask okay. you. Okay. Do you have any brick walls that are driving you nuts? <laughs> oh, absolutely. 
Um, my great 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 grandfather was Joseph Cooper, and we have no idea where he was from. We had um, a DNA test done, and he falls in with the Coopers of North Carolina, Benjamin A., etc. But we can't be sure because we can't trace it. Um, I was told once by a genealogist that Orangeburg County, which is where the Cooper part was from, was a place where people went when they wanted to get lost, when they wanted to be anonymous, and that they would all take the name Cooper. Well, I don't think this is what happened. I think that their name really was Cooper, but there are at least three distinct Cooper families in South Carolina, and it's hard to figure out who was who and who was related to who. So that's my brick wall. How can we contact you for additional information? What's the best way to contact my, you, by email? Yeah, the best way is by email. My email address is jlc5f, as in Frank, at virginia.edu. And the Virginia is spelled out. Okay. Uh -huh. Oh, I've got one thing I wanted to, to tell you about so that people can use it. Um, we have a website at the University of Virginia that has links to the microfilm guides so that you can actually look at the guides without having to get them through interlibrary loan. They're, they're full text online. So here's the website. Okay. Guides, G-U-I-D-E-S dot L-I-B, as in library, L-I-B dot Virginia Dot that's spelled edu, out. That's spelled out. Dot edu slash microform southern plantations, and that's all one word. Okay. Re would you just repeat that one more time for our listeners? People have sure. typed it into the chat. Guides, G-U-I-D-E-S, dot L-I-B, dot Virginia, dot E-D-U, slash, microform, southern, plantations. Thank you. You're welcome. Any surprises overall in terms of this project you worked on? Anything that really stood out as you worked uh, first the six years before you decided to compile the index and then during the four-year period that you actually worked on compiling the index? Um, mostly what surprised me was the matter-of-factness that people talked about enslaving other people. Um, let me read you a little bit, if I can find it. Yes, here it is. This is from uh, Robert T. Hubbard, who was a slave owner in Buckingham County, Virginia. And he wrote, he had a notebook in which he listed all of his slaves. Many uh, slave owners did this, and they did it every year because slaves were money, and they wanted to keep track of their money. 
So at the beginning of this book, Robert T. Hubbard says, I wish to make this little book a register of the Negroes owned by me in Buckingham to insert their names and ages and to note births and deaths among them. The master should know not only the names, but study the characters and ascertain the age of his slaves. It is important to know their age because slaves over 16 and also between 12 and 16 are subjects of taxation because this knowledge is useful and necessary in the division and distribution of property and desirable whenever circumstances require that the owner should sell any of his slaves. My sons would perhaps be glad to have this information and that alone is a sufficient reason for my undertaking to embody and transmit it for future reference. One of the things that I found kind of uh, karmic about this guy is that with all of his careful listing of slaves, when the Civil War was over and he tried to get reimbursement for his slaves, which there were about 150 of them, he couldn't because nobody was giving out money in in Virginia for that. Well, you're right about that. Um, It's very interesting to see, as you say, how detached he is. Mm -hmm. This is Mm -hmm. just a business. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Another question before I ask a concluding question to you. Does your book cover plantations in Tennessee? There may be some. I don't know. I I haven't looked at it recently. Um, Hmm. I would say probably one or two, but there aren't a whole lot of Tennessee records at all. The, um, the you should be flashing a map of the southern states. Yes. On the page, okay. The states that were in that gave uh, materials were Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina. There were a few from Georgia a few from Florida, a few from Tennessee. There were some from Alabama, Mississippi, a few from Arkansas, Louisiana, and Texas. So it's strong in some states and not strong in other states. Thank you. That that still covers basically the South, but unfortunately some yeah. states, you just don't have the wealth of records. Right. Well, believe it or not, we've come to basically the end of the show, but I wanted to find out if you had any closing remarks. Um, well, I guess I would just like to encourage people to use these primary resources because this is straight from the source. Uh, it's not going through somebody's head. If you look at the census, When you see what's written down and scanned and in Ancestry.com, what you see has gone through three or four different minds. And it may be misspelled. It may be wrong. um, Somebody could have misheard something. But these are written down by the people who lived them. And that's the sort of material you need to be using for your genealogical research. Indeed. 
One last question coming out of the chat. Mm -hmm. Any advice you would give to one researching enslaved ancestors? ancestors? I would say don't give up. Um, Even if you don't find anything in this collection, remember that it wasn't everything in 1976, everything available, and it's certainly not everything available now. And you just have to keep on the trail. Excellent advice. I want to thank Jane for joining us tonight in the chat room and also, it was wonderful to hear Natani Lane's Kemp as she interviewed Jean. So remember, everyone, I will have a show next week, and I will be posting the October, October schedule so that you can see what I will be offering you. And October is going to have a, just a wonderful lineup of guests. So you can continue this discussion on research at the National Archives and Beyond and the AfroGenius Facebook pages. Also, remember to listen to the African Roots Podcast with Angela Walton Raji on Friday and Nurturing Our Roots with Antoinette Harrell on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thank you for joining Research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I look forward to you joining me next week. Good night, everyone.